right. Uh, hi, everyone, and uh, welcome to our course, AI Talk. Today, we have Alexander Molek with, with us. Welcome. Welcome. Hi, everyone. How are you thank today? You your, uh, very good. Thank you. And thank you for, for inviting me. Yeah, uh, our pleasure. Yeah, so we have a little bit of history, I would say. Been together at some of the Deep Learning Labs events. I think it was... Uh, Probably one and a half year ago now. Around. I think it was more. I think it was more actually. I think it was like two or three years ago. But I don't. Awesome. We should invite you because I think you have a very interesting background, and I would uh, love to learn a bit more uh, uh, in general. What got you into AI to start with, and what you work with today, and and kind of how the future looks. Would you like to start with maybe? Telling a little bit, what are you? What have you been up to for the last since I talked with you last time for last two years? Last uh, last two years, I spent I spent first at Lingaro. Lingaro is, a, is an international consulting company. I sometimes I call it a data house, so as a software house, but specializing in, in data. And at Lingaro, I was uh, working as an innovation lead, machine learning engineer and researcher. Where I was, and I was working with mainly global uh, global customers from a Fortune 500 and Fortune 100 list, and building, designing, and building large-scale AI systems for them with, with my team. Uh, and then in December, I decided to take a little break, gap two months, and and I focused on um, on writing blogs, just life. In February, I started working with Iron Scales. I, I moved to Tel Aviv and started working with Iron Scales. Iron Scales is one of the best-known and fastest-growing uh, messaging security companies in the world currently. We are mm -hmm. in INC. The 5,000 list. So it's a startup. Uh, it's a relatively relatively young company, but with uh, pretty good financing. So in the last round, we were able to uh, secure over $64 million in the, in the last round. And we are working on one hand on automating uh, phishing and other types of attacks uh, detection for mostly for corporate uh, clients. Uh, on the other hand, we have a very strong branch in uh, security training and awareness training. What we are trying to do is always uh, have machine and human engaged in the process, yeah. right? We have analysts and so on, and our AI systems are pretty good today. Uh, but still, we believe, we deeply believe that because of the nature of, of, uh, of phishing attacks and other types of attacks, human in the loop is always beneficial. So we are not planning to eliminate humans. We're rather aiming at building effective uh, collaboration between between humans and machines in this regard. Definitely. So I would love to talk and we will talk uh, a bit more about what you're doing uh, right now. First, I would just like to learn a bit like how did you get into AI? to start with like how how did this whole journey begin for you it depends like where we want to start the story right um <laughs> My, my my first uh, my first encounter with computers was was very early in my life. So I was maybe five, six, four, five, six years 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 old when I when we had the first computer at home. It was uh, something very very simple and very very old school. But then when I was like six, seven years old, I I, I was writing a little bit of programs in the in a programming language called Basic. I don't know, maybe some of you are aware of this and. Maybe that's significant. One of the programs that I wrote was a piano. So you could use keyboard, like computer keyboard, to play 
play sounds and play melodies. I said that maybe it's significant because before I started uh, in machine learning, I used to work as a music producer, a record and mixing engineer. I had my own studio, my own production company, and I work with, with the artists from pretty much all over the world. At some stage, I uh, decided to start my, my second degree program. It was uh, in psychology, experimental social psychology with elements of neuroscience and advanced statistics and stuff. And then I heard about statistics there and I really loved this topic. Uh, so I started digging deeper and deeper. I asked one of my colleagues who was doing uh, a joint program in psychology and computer science, what's going on in computer science nowadays because I had since I was like seven or maybe ten years old I, I just stopped uh, doing anything with computers and she told me about Python. I started reading about this and you know reading about Python and statistics in like early 2010 inevitably led me to learning about machine learning and uh, when I heard about it I was just uh, very very deeply fascinated by this topic. I just immediately said I, I want to I want to understand how it works you know it's um, it touches like many topics that uh, that are very uh, deeply interesting to the nature of mm -hmm. knowledge, the nature of how we learn human beings as uh, as animals, as complex animals. What is possible? The nature of uh, the nature of information. What is it, and how can it be used? So, so this was pretty in intense love affair from from the first sight. So was it NLP that catched your attention from the from the beginning, or was that kind of something you you got into? later on uh, it was definitely something that i got into later on but also like a part of my my, my first uh, degree that i was studying uh, it, it was uh, philosophy in particular philosophy of language so those topics in lp were also I, I felt connected to them but uh, but i started with general machine learning definitely with uh, in particular i was interested in classification i i, I found it more interesting the regression problem in the beginning problems in the beginning but going to nlp was a journey and it was uh, not my first choice but when i was working at lingaro it turned out that for some projects uh, partially because of my knowledge uh, of, of language linguistics uh, that i had from my uh, philosophy studies and the fact that i like languages in general i had some background that was helpful to move things a little bit faster and and this is uh, how i how I got uh, more serious about NLP. So I just was engaged in some projects and then I started learning more and, and more. Yeah, you're definitely the right path then, uh, looking at the massive uh, progression that the space have been seeing over the last couple of years. I was myself quite skeptical to, to NLP just a couple of, couple of years back and I um, thought it would be problematic to get to such a level that we can see today or what is your like are you surprised over the uh, progression within the space that we have seen especially say the last uh, three years i think it's very very interesting what you said uh, so there, there are two things that, that i think are, are, are very worth uh, commenting from what you said so first you said that i was it was a good choice but actually, when I was studying with NLP, it, it seemed that a much better choice is to go to computer vision, right? Because it was still the time when, uh, when this field was growing very, very quickly, and it was just insane. Second part of your question regarding if I'm surprised, yes, I was somehow surprised that the progress was so fast. Though I must say from, from, from my professional um, experience that I, see, I still see many use cases where very, very simple methods outperform very complex methods, right? This is not the very popular topic in, in, in discussions regarding NLP. Uh, probably everybody prefers 
talk about amazing stuff that this new uh, new architectures like like transformers and, and combined architectures like uh, diffusion models with transformers and clip and, and this DALI 2 and so on what they're capable of um, but still there are, I see relatively many use cases where uh, very simple methods can give you very good results um, and I think it's worthwhile remembering that those simple methods are exponentially less computationally expensive, right? So this also translates to um, the fact that they are easier to maintain and they are cheaper, much cheaper, and also easier to productionalize, right? That said, uh, of course, the new methods are very exciting and uh, and the capability, the growth of the field is is just uh, is just amazing. I agree with you and. Um... I find I find it very exciting how I mean we have we have um, one part that is people like you that have a extremely deep technical and and um, low level as we say in in, in tech understanding about uh, mm -hmm. about uh, technology. I find it really interesting how how this new especially within transformers kind of are opening up the field for a totally different group of people to ex actually experiment and, and build things around it. Because if we just reverse back a few years, someone that were not really seasoned in, in Python and, and this space would have a big problem even getting anything working, basically. While we today, especially around when we do events on the uh, uh, now called LabLab AI platform, we really see uh, great result uh, when we put diverse team, teams together. So teams that have both, uh, uh, one half is uh, very technical and the other half is not technical at all, basically. They don't think in technical terms. What do you believe, like what, what is AI doing for computing in in, in, uh, in your world do you think it are changing the way we build and interact with things or I, I would like to understand a bit your view of say where we are today and how how do you think AI will impact day-to-day -day computing in the um, uh, say next five years I think that's very that's very interesting it's a great question start with what you mentioned uh, regarding um, the AI space opening for less technical people because I think this is a very very uh, interesting direction and and highly underrated and and not that vividly discussed in the community right maybe it's uh, partially because in the community there are many or mainly there are technical people and they prefer to focus on what what they what is interesting to them. But I think this is a very interesting direction. And those high level interfaces to interact with uh, with, with the models. Mm. And I think you can see this very how people interact with with Dali too, right? So you have people who are interested in technology but not, are not technical people. And if you go, if I go when I go on LinkedIn, I, I see many things like you know people just getting access to the. Uh, to the API, and even though they they are not programmers or AI expert, technical sense, they just interact with this. They create something and they share. It. And I think this is uh, this is something something very interesting. I think there's a there, there might be a very large uh, potential in this mm, in this in this field. So the field of providing AI tools 
for, for creati creativity for people who are not technical experts. Second part of your question about uh, my belief regarding how AI will impact how people interact with technology. Is, is that correct? Is my understanding correct of the question? Yes, exactly. I, I think there are two perspectives here, right? Uh, one obvious perspective is, is technological and like what we can provide in, in terms of like solving some uh, well-defined problems. And another perspective is, I would call it a UX perspective, right? So all those technologies um, or all this technology uh, might be used to improve people, uh, people experience. And um, I think we already see uh, this happening from like since a couple of years, for instance, uh, all those like voice assistants and so on. Uh, I feel like like Google Assistant is something that's so smoothly integrated into other types of systems that uh, most people don't even think about that there's like some advanced computing behind it. Mm, and I think that from, from, from business point of view, uh, maybe this, uh, this is the future. So building such smooth integrations of advanced technology into everyday life, into, into appliances that we use every day, like phones, I know, fridges, you know, and and hope that we don't even that we don't even uh, notice that there is something like this, but it still impacts our life quality in the sense that we 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 can do things faster and and more efficient. Do you have any experience uh, using systems such as um, um, Codex or GitHub uh, Copilot in your day-to-day -day work? Just to explain for people listening, so Codex is kind of spin-off of GPT-3 trained on uh, uh, especially code uh, available as a, uh, I think it's still in, in closed, uh, closed beta. We have, when people come to our events, we, we onboard them on it. Personally, what I see there is a lot of, say, the command layer going away. Like expertise are super relevant because you need to know what you want, but you maybe necessarily doesn't have to shop every 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 button to make it happen uh, have you tried any of these things and what is your point of view of it because i know it's always like in the the ai world have always been and probably still are extremely divided so i, I would love to understand what is your point of view of this should is it okay to use a system that partly can automate code right or uh, is this your uh, art form that there no automation should happen? So I guess uh, for, for some people it might be personal, right? That someone, uh, someone or something is, is writing the code for them, and it feels like I don't know, maybe taking off uh, something, something from them in the creative process. And I think that's an understandable point of view. Uh, I, I also think about. Uh, you know, more and more advanced technologies in music production, right? Where, where, where is my part of my, my previous background is as well. I remember many people reacting even to samplers that were imitating, for instance, like uh, acoustic instruments, like violin and so on. At some point, those samplers became very, very good. Some people were just like, this is just like, it will never be as good as human, you know? And we cannot use it. Like, this will take, uh, take work away from people and so on and so on. So far, I don't see this happening, uh, but I understand that uh, for somebody who is very closely related to the fact that they are doing something with their own hands uh, and it's a creative process, this might be maybe threatening or, or, or maybe somehow something hard to accept. Uh, that said, I think these tools are just useful. I tried, I tried them in my like personal account and I think 
sometimes they are pretty amazing, really. I mean, I tried some, some examples that were not, uh, you know, like uh, examples from the book, you know. It was something, let's say, uh, less popular, right? And, and they were doing pretty good job. My opinion is, uh, why not to use them? They can speed up your process, you know, write documentation for you maybe, uh, right? Even the structure of the function, it just makes uh, the creative process much more efficient, much faster. And if we can do it, uh, look, it, it's, it, it's a little bit about human nature and how our brain works. Our working memory can only hold four up to seven items at the same time. And seven is really, it's, it's rare that it, that's happened. So now, if you have an idea and if you have a, a, a quick, a fast stream of thought, how to implement this idea, it's virtually impossible that you write all of this life with your, with your fingers. So these tools are very, very good in this in this regard, and they can enhance uh, creativity. Contrary to what what some people might feel, but they might might in fact enhance your creativity by providing you uh, a bridge between your brain and you know and your computer that is just much, much faster, much, much more efficient than than using uh, your your physical interface. You know, your hand. I totally agree with what what you are saying and either i can either i can go to google and i google how to figure out how to get this base of this function or i can use a tool say like uh, codex and i and i can get it there but many people might see it in such a way that okay then it writes the code but no it's still like the person there are still the creator you are the one still who need to look at this function, tweak it, get it the way you want, and, and create it. So I, I very much agree with you. It's, it's something that enhances possibilities of, of uh, creativity a lot. I would like to know a bit, because what, what we can see uh, uh, looking both, both at data and, and, and release of new uh, models and, and applications, it seems like things are speeding up a lot. So. One example with the DALI 2, so it was released a couple of months ago. And normally there is a cycle of one, two years before you can see something coming out that are even better. Now in this case, I think just, uh, just a couple of weeks, a few, very few months uh, after uh, Google released a new model called, um, remember the name? Uh, Imagine. Uh, Imagine. Imagine, yes, exactly. Do you see this also like a rapid kind of the speed of progression increasing? And if so, what do you believe is the like driving factor behind it? I definitely see the the the, the speed of progression increasing, especially in in like multi-model or cross-model models. Uh, so this is uh, the topic. I remember it was two thousand, like late two thousand twenty. And I remember myself uh, just taking a walk and reading a paper that was a survey paper for multi-model and cross-model machine learning. And everything there was so much less advanced than what happened after just like a couple months after I read this paper. And it was a very fresh paper that, uh, at the time. We just got like exponentially higher in a couple of maybe couple of months so this is this is very fast i, I feel like in multi-model or cross-model and all this these families of of, of mixing modalities uh, in this area uh, we now experience something similar to what happened in, with, with vision uh, in like early 2010s right mm, so you just have like one, two, three things and this like everything is better than than what was before or what we experienced in nlp 
it was very similar. I don't know if you remember. Uh, we had uh, we had LSTMs uh, like bidirectional LSTMs. Then suddenly Elmo appeared, and I finished uh, reading the Elmo paper, and there was already bird paper. We started implementing now one of our projects. We started implementing Elmo, and we haven't finished. And there was uh, already bird that that was beating you know uh, Elmo on most of the metrics, right? So that was uh, that was pretty crazy. Uh, so I feel I feel what is happening in. Um, with those generative multi-model models now is very is very similar, um, and I think what what Dali two is, is able to to accomplish is, is is pretty astonishing. It's I remember people telling over the last five seven years I remember many people saying like I don't I don't believe that machines can be creative, you know, they they can be creative. Now I don't hear these voices. There's also uh, there's, there's also large progress in this uh, this regard uh, in in music generation. I don't know if you if you are following this field, but uh, sometimes it's it's difficult to to today's really there are the algorithms that are generating music. It's it's very hard to differentiate if, if that was human or not, especially if you take into account like broad spectrum of humans with with broad spectrum of skills, then it's it becomes virtually impossible uh, to distinguish. That's so, interesting. I, I don't personally have uh, so much knowledge about uh, the music stuff. I uh, would love to have you uh, uh, back a second time a bit in the future and, and talk specifically uh, about the whole music space that where you have a lot of, of uh, uh, knowledge. One thing I would like to ask you is, so at the um, iron scale and trying to uh, uh, fight fishing, is this uh, like the never-ending battle now when we see, say, models such as GPT-3 or uh, Cohere or AI-21 and those, uh, and then we have the whole hugging face uh, ecosystem and so on. It, it must really be like this uh, consistent battle there or, or like, I don't know how much you can tell or so, but kind of how, how is there much to say the bad guys? Have they started to adopt? AI in, in their work, so to say, or? Uh... That's a great question. I'm not sure if they started adopting AI in their work, uh, but what we see sometimes is uh, that, for instance, there are many, many tricks that they're using, and that's very interesting to look at them. Uh, sometimes we see things like you have an email and there's some content in this email, and then it, there is a mask content that is invisible to humans because maybe it's white font or maybe something like this. Mm -hmm. This is just like some abstract poetry that sounds like, like generated by GPT. Maybe two, maybe three, I don't know. Uh, it's like, you know, it doesn't make too much sense. It's very poetic and so on. Um, and so I'm, I'm pretty sure that these people are aware that uh, language models might get confused by something like this. So this can be considered an adversarial attack. Maybe, I'm hard to say, hard to say if, 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 if for sure, but maybe they are using uh, models for this, right? It sounds like they could, uh, from, what I, from what I read in those emails that we, that we found. Now, from the implementation point of view and what we are trying to do and what we are trying to achieve, I must say that I'm always a little bit, uh, a little bit conservative with taking things that have a lot of hype around them. Uh, and applying them straight to production. Mm, from my experience, uh, and it goes back to what I, what I said in the beginning, uh, sometimes very simple models can give you very, very good um, results. Now, um, I, I cannot give you too much uh, of a detail, unfortunately, but uh, 
I can I can share with you one of my my recent experiments where I used um, a pretty advanced language model for detecting certain types of, of attacks. It was a multi-class classification problem, and this model had pretty mm, difficult time with certain classes. Okay, so it was doing really well on, on, cert, on certain classes, but on certain other classes, it was just not, uh, not working very well. And the, able, the, the way I was able to solve this problem was by using um, information theoretic uh, summaries of the content in the email. So something that you would think uh, comes, uh, I don't know, maybe from the 90s even, right? People in the 90s were using uh, methods like this, like similar methods, maybe not identical, but conceptually similar. Uh, and, and this uh, just work, worked brilliantly. So combining those two uh, paths uh, was, was able to solve the problem and, uh, and address uh, spaces where, where the advanced, pretty advanced language model was not able to, to perform very well. I'm not sure if this answers your question. I think it's a good answer from your point of view. What makes you most exciting right here today in AI? Like what is the, what's the thing that amazes you and, and like personally very exciting? Mm -hmm. there, are three, uh, there are three areas like this. So uh, one is multi-model modeling, uh, not necessarily using, using vision and language. Uh, but multi-model and cross-model models is something that I think uh, has great potential in many, mm, in many different uh, areas of application. So, for instance, even if we think about combining, um, combining numerical and language features in some cross-attention model, for instance, and stuff like this, mm, I see uh, from research and from practice that this uh, can bring really uh, tremendous results, really great improvements sometimes much greater than just applying a more complex language model. So that's one field. Another field that I think is, um, is very interesting and exciting, and there's a lot of stuff uh, going on there, uh, but maybe it's not uh, that visible because there is no that much hype around it, uh, is uncertainty mm, modeling. So all types of models that are trying to, to, to model uncertainty um, around predictions, right? Classic machine learning gives you point estimates usually. So for a regression problem, you will just get a number, one number, or if it's a multi-dimensional regression problem and a, a vector of numbers. Uh, in classification, you will just get class information and so on. Now, uh, those, uh, those estimates are usually, there is some model has some uncertainty around them, right? And there are two types of uncertainty, aleatoric and, and, and epistemic uncertainty. Mm. And from decision-making point of view, I think this is really crucial. So the fact that we understand when, when, in which, in which cases the model is not sure about the prediction, and and what we, what many people tend to do, naively, especially in the classification case, is just taking the softmax score from the last layer of the, the classification layer, and treating this as an uncertainty estimate. So, for instance, if model says like it's 0.95 a dog, then we say it's 95% uh, sure that it's a dog. But if you look closer, uh, if you look closer into uh, how softmax works, you will, you will see that softmax is a biased function. So the, the probability estimate is not reliable. It's pushing the scores towards one and towards zero. This is the nature of softmax, right? It's trying to maximize the difference be between the preferred class and, and other classes.
of course you can you can apply temperature and so on uh, to to make it uh, a little bit uh, less drastic uh, but still it's, it's a biased function and it doesn't give you good um, um, good estimates of, of uncertainty and so sometimes uh, just to give uh, something more practical um, if you want to if you want to, if you build a medical diagnosis system for instance and your classifier tells, says that your patient uh, uh, your patient Anna she has uh, nine, it's 95 percent that it's a cancer and then you make decision on this but then if you quantify uncertainty so one of uh, a simple uh, things that you can do you can use uh, you can use Monte Carlo dropout so just leave dropout layers working when you generate predictions and then generate hundreds or thousands of predictions and then you will get distributions over softmax scores for each of the classes so now you can see that maybe this 95 is in the top fifth percentile of your scores which means that the uncertainty is very very high because your softmax scores for cancer were all be between maybe 0.1 and 0.9 right on 0.10 and 0.95 this is very different uh, understanding of what the model is telling us than if we just have one score and it's 0.95. So uncertainty <laughs> estimation is the second field. Um, and there is a lot of interesting research going on there. And the third uh, field that I feel very excited about is, uh, is causality. So this is building model that do not only learn associations in the data. Then these are models that are trying to either learn or estimate the causal effects um, the causal effects uh, in your data this is a very challenging problem um, especially in complex real world real world cases it's challenging from many many different um, different angles but I think it's very mm, it's very interesting and there's very very lively uh, research going on um, on machine learning and uh, and causality on the edge of, of, of two fields mm. and also there is not that much hype around this uh, this field today as is around like multi-model for instance models or um, or LP models even uh, but if you look at what is going on on conferences and so on uh, the the growth rate is already exponential for causality uh, so I, I guess we can expect um, expect a very mm, fast growth and, and very fast growth of um, awareness in the community of those problems and how to deal with them and the way you do with causality is different than uh, the classic machine learning in many regards so it's a slightly different logic it's a slightly different uh, slightly different approach mm. and for me when I was starting with this field and um, some things were very very counterintuitive like coming from frequentist statistics uh, to causality required um, quite a change of a mindset and currently I'm, I'm working on a book on causality in Python causal inference and causal discovery uh, and this book should be ready like early next year yeah your uh, your uh, uh, knowledge are really uh, astonishing and and, and uh, really deep I, I hope we will be able to convince you at some point to come and talk more in in depth about this area for the um, uh, deep learning labs lab lab community i can imagine many people would be interested in in, in understanding it better and from a 
very scientific point of view um, as you have. So uh, yes, you're writing on this bo book. Uh, how is that going? And is it smooth sailing or is there a challenge writing a whole book? It's very, it's very fulfilling on one hand and it's very exciting, but it's, it's a challenge. So uh, as, we, as we discussed before, I'm, I'm currently working full time and, and writing a book and I'm also married. So, you know, uh, I'm also uh, want to keep my relationship in good condition, and there's also social life, you know, and other things that I'm interested in. Uh, so that's challenging. Uh, but the, my solution is uh, that I just, I, I, I just, I'm just scheduling everything, you know, very, very precisely, and and this helps. So, mm, so, so this is a little bit easier, mm, but it, it's an intense time for me, definitely. Yeah, maybe you can use, uh, actually, I think it was, uh, you had an American, no American Novel Writing Championship. I think the winner there had actually been using uh, GPT-3 part, I think. Yes. Was, uh, yes, a few months ago. Uh, That's very interesting. Yeah, so, so thank you thank you for suggesting maybe I, maybe I, should, yeah, you, maybe I should collaborate you, with our friend GPT-3 on this. <laughs> Yeah, you must let us know once uh, the book is out, and we are we will we will post it, of course, in our channels and and spread it to the community. Uh, Great, thank so you. So, before we wrap this up, I think uh, Olesia have a question. Oh, hello. Yeah, first of all, I'm very happy to see Alexander today here. As uh, far as I know, you was in the DLL community also, so it's really valuable to know that. He was in the community and now you're here on the interview. So we're very happy to have you today. Uh, my question is um, like more uh, from non-tech side. From your perspective, how the AI can change our life of user of technology, not the engineers, in the pretty near future, like two, three, maybe four years? I, I can only guess, right? Um, so... Uh... There's a very interesting research by Professor Tetlock who says that experts usually are wrong when it comes to predicting the future. Uh, nevertheless, uh, I will give it a try. I think there there are a couple of uh, there are a couple of um, interesting paths. Uh, one is medicine. So, from from my conversations with people who are starting companies uh, companies in the area of uh, using uh, applying machine learning in medicine or people who are interested in this topic. I hear uh, the same thing and, it, and I hear this from people all over the world, like from different countries. So they say that uh, medicine is pretty conservative, which is understandable because it's about human health and human life. Uh, and because of this uh, conservative nature of the field, many solutions that uh, have been already applied in different fields are still very new to medicine. So I met uh, a couple of people, I had very similar conversations with a couple of people who are trying to do AI in medicine and they say that there's a huge potential for applying even simple machine learning to make diagnostic process uh, more smooth, uh, for instance. And what's interesting is that most of those people, they are not going, they don't have an idea about automating fully the process, but rather making it more efficient. So 
it's a reality in many, many, in many countries that uh, doctors are overwhelmed and the booking system is that they have like 15, 20 minutes for the patient sometimes. So, so on top of this, uh, going through diagnostic materials uh, seems pretty, pretty challenging in, in many cases. So, so what, uh, what I heard from people from the field is that building systems that help doctors to reduce or narrow the scope uh, of potential diagnosis, for instance, uh, for a given patient. It's something that has, uh, has a very good, uh, very good potential. Mm. So hopefully this, uh, this is something that goes in a, in a good direction. I think another mm, interesting field is recommendation systems. So we, we know and we I think all of us experienced this at some point that recommendation systems might um, narrow down the world that we experience digitally, right? In a sense that if I go to YouTube, I will see mostly uh, recommendations for, for content, for the content that is similar to what I've already seen or what I liked. And YouTube, I've, from what I know, is trying to actively uh, do something with it as well. Uh, but it's still a large part of, exp of, of experience online, of the experience online. So, um, this is interesting, given the polarization, social and political polarization that we that we can observe all over the world. Uh, these recommendation systems uh, work. There is research showing that they work, uh, creating echo chambers. Right. So, um, I'm not sure how to how to answer like which direction we will go, but I think that who are developing algorithms and like big tech companies are more and more aware of the fact that those echo chambers are being created. So I can only express my hope that in the future those algorithms will be designed in a way that will reduce this echo chamberness of, of, of the online experience. Mm. But I must say I must say as a social psychologist um, that this, uh, that this is a difficult, uh, difficult topic. When we already have a polarization, um, sometimes it might be very difficult to reduce this polarization, even using, uh, even even using like th things like this, even if these technologies are um, are advanced, because it's not only about th the technology; it's also about, uh, or mainly about. Uh, how people think and feel about um, about the world and, and, and other other people in the world. Thank you for a really detailed answer, um, especially for yeah from medic perspective. I think that a lot of users is really afraid of AI in medicine because uh, it may be really risky patients. And also the second thing that uh, a lot of people are in the age they really afraid of technology at all and not mm -hmm. talking about the AI. And I think it's. Really, a lot of a lot of work with people who are afraid of technology. Also, I think it's a very interesting point uh, that that you made, and and I think that the this idea of using uh, machine learning as something that helps uh, humans rather than solves problems itself, especially in medicine, uh, is a good starting point. Um, I'm, I'm I really believe. Thank you so much for the. Question, Alexa, and um, yeah, I agree with you there, uh, Alexander. I think I think just many people have. Um, I mean, it's very easy to have a misunderstanding what is AI, and most people thinking about AI, thinking about this super intelligent 
computer that's uh, acting human-like with uh, uh, super, um, super intelligence. Uh, we will not take more of your time, but we want to thank you super much for coming here and talking about this. You are uh, you are one of the most knowledgeable people uh, uh, I know within this area, and your background are super interesting. I hope to uh, have you back uh, uh, in the future to talk a bit more about uh, uh, your passion and music, how we can use AI there, and maybe one day uh, also see you talking more in depth about uh, um, the more advanced uh, topics within AI and these new areas you see. So, yeah, thank you super much. Um, I will let you go now so you can keep the life balance, family balance on the right scale there. Uh, but thank you, thank you so much, and, and um, your work is super impressive. And um, uh, super glad to have you here. Great, Matthias. Thank you. Uh, that's very kind what you said. I appreciate this. Uh, it was a pleasure to discuss with you. Uh, and thank you for your great, great and very insightful questions. Um, okay. I'll be very happy to join you again in some time. <laughs>